Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode, in fact, our final episode of 2022 of the Eating Crow podcast. I'm excited to have Denise Conroy in the program today. Welcome, Denise. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So I reached out to Denise after she put up a very compelling post kind of describing her background, what she's accomplished. And some of those posts I look at and I go, eh, kind of humble brag. Yours wasn't. It was a really cool story of kind of grinding it out. I think you're probably pretty doggone smart too, Denise. So let's acknowledge that too as well. There's some intelligence along with the effort there. But what also drew me to your background is you're you're kind of in a position where you're giving back and helping a lot of other people. I don't run across people who are as young as you are who have has accomplished as much as you have. So what we're going to do today is talk about a little bit about your background, how you grew up, and then some of the bigger things you've done. And then now I want to dig into Themi. You've got a book coming out. Is it published yet? It's supposed to come out soon, right? Next month. Comes out next month. Yep. Perfect. And I want to dig into the scholarship that you have as well. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Scholarships are awesome. They are. So West Virginia. Yeah. Mountaineer. Tell me what life was like growing up in West Virginia. I never felt like I fit in. It was really interesting. interesting. So I, I was not born in West Virginia. I was the only one of my four siblings that wasn't. I was born in Pittsburgh and my parents were both from Pittsburgh. And I don't know, I always had this thing that I was a Pittsburgher and I, I just, I don't know, just never really, the West Virginia thing didn't click. Not to say that, and I recognize this because I've now lived all over the country, people from West Virginia are awesome. They're like humble and they mm-hmm. work hard and they're just like salt of the earth, amazingly good people. And it's a beautiful state. And that said, I just always felt like square peg, right? Round hole. And for me, it was, it was, my background's a little different for the time. So I was born in 1971, grew up in the seventies and eighties when your mom worked back then it was weird. Right. Right. I had a mom who was the breadwinner. She already had a, a college degree. She had a degree from Penn state and she was a graphic designer. She had done set design and television in, in Pittsburgh for the public television station, Mr. Rogers neighborhood hysterically. Wow. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Right. The magical neighborhood and all that. She was one of the set designers that built it, which was just super cool. So she was already a bit more established in her life. My father had grown up on the north side of Pittsburgh, which is good now, wasn't then. It was very, very poor. And he, on a whim, signed up for Vietnam with two friends. So he literally goes and signs up with these other two friends. Both ended up dying, by the way. He lucked out that although he was not formally educated, he was just smart. So he takes this, you know, test to get into the service. He tests into Army Security Agency, which was not a frontline ground pounder type job, his friends, not as fortunate, and they end up, you know, front lines, ground pounders, and they they get killed pretty quickly in Vietnam. And so he signed up, Vietnam was walking the park for him compared to his life back in the States. So he signs up for two tours of duty. And by the time he becomes, you know, a dad for the first time, I'm the oldest of four, I'm the only girl. He is Mr. Mom. My mom has to go out and work. He decides he's going to use the GI Bill to go to West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. And they don't have anybody to watch me, right? They can't pay for it. They can't afford it because they're just starting out. So he takes me to school with him all the time. So I go, he majors in political science. He thought he wanted to be a lawyer. And I go to all these poli sci classes with him. I'm three years old. I'm super cool though. He just gives me crayons in my own notebook. And I pretend like I'm like one of the students and it, you know, I'm a nerdy kid even back then. 
So it was a weird dynamic because I spent the first seven or eight years because my mom was the breadwinner. She was working during the day with my dad. And what I noticed really quickly about that was he lived this really sane, rational life compared to my mother as a woman who she was always second guessing herself. She was always dealing with all kinds of like, you know, pretty hostile stuff at work, especially back in the day. And like my dad was just like, yeah, he'd just show up as he was. And it was beautiful. It was just very, so that for better or for worse informed me as a girl growing up. Well, Denise, I've already, I'm already picturing the miniseries on this whole backstory. Yeah. Literally, I, I have not been this pulled into a podcast in the first five minutes in a long time. That's oh, fa- It's fascinating. It is. And it was, it was kind of wild because we didn't have a lot. And my father really struggled to acclimate from the service, you know, into normal, like a lot of service guys do, service people, yeah. into, you know, normal life. And a lot of people didn't recognize, my mother would remind me of this all the time, you know, it's really hard for your dad. He's really behind the curve. He missed all that time while he was in the service and while he was overseas. And he never had a lot to begin with, given his family. So we were always playing catch up and it felt like Mm -hmm. we never caught up. And he felt that. Now, as an adult, I'm 51 years old. I look back and I, I know how he felt like a failure all the time. He just did. He was brilliant. He got amazing grades. He was at the top of his class at West Virginia. He goes to apply for law school. And they're like, although he'd lived in West Virginia for four years at that point, because he'd finished his degree, they were like at the law school at WVU, they're like, you can't get in because you're a Pennsylvania resident. We've capped out on how many PA residents. So he was a guy who unfortunately would get easily discouraged. And I think now looking back, he was always being hit, you know, back up, right? That said, my mother became this resilient one. She had incredible resolve. So I learned from her resolve. Everybody talks about resilience. Resilience to me is resolve's baby sister. Like resolve is like, I will not be denied. And that was my mom, right? She was like, I will not be denied to put food on the table for my children. I will not be denied, you know, to make them have self-esteem and self-confidence. That for better or for worse was sort of some of the tensions growing up. You compound that with when I was five years old, we lived in an apartment complex and I was sexually assaulted by a group of kids. So they were teenagers. They were the bad teenagers in the group, right? Or in the neighborhood. Everybody knew them. They were probably anywhere from 15 to 19 years old in age. And so one day my mom had just had twins. So she's got me. I'm five. I got these twin brothers who just come home literally a few weeks before this woman's swimming in children. She's not even 30 years old yet. And She's, I'm like, let me go out and play. And my dad was real overprotective, but he wasn't home that day. Beautiful spring day. Sure. And, and she's like, you know, your dad's going to give me a hard time. And she was, she was afraid of my dad. Let's, let's be fair. He was a pretty right. guy. And finally I wore her down. She let me out and she was like, just go with this really beautiful green space in the back of the apartment complex. Just play in the green space, you know, mm-hmm. and when I call you, you need to come. Right. Well, unfortunately she got caught up with, you know, normal things. She had two new babies. Yeah. And these kids cornered me and proceeded to sexually assault me. How long it lasted, I have no idea. I just right. knew that one of the, there was a girl in the group and she looked like Peppermint Patty, which is the thing I can remember. And she basically said, if you say a word to anyone, I'll fucking kill you. When she took me back and sort of pushed me into my door of our apartment. And I believed her because I was little and I didn't have any yeah. power and I had this weirdo family that had all kinds of dysfunction. So I walked into the house. My mom didn't notice anything was off. How could she? She was exhausted. Right. And I never told another soul until I was 43. That's sort of the, the landscape. I mean, if you're going to write this story, episode two just got dark and then it sets the tone for a lot of things. I mean, I'm glad we met because I didn't know any of this, right? 
the backstory. So you said a couple of things. We're going to take that and set it off to the side for a minute because I'm sure there's a lot there. A couple of things I want to talk about. You mentioned early in their conversation, traits of both your mom and your dad that were interesting. So you saw your dad who was incredibly intelligent and the way you described him, he could kind of ease into a situation to be comfortable. For sure. He wasn't trying to be anybody but himself. Whether or not he felt like he was being beat down and could he was comfortable in his own skin. Indeed. And then your mom, who's facing all these biases and things of being a working mom and things, but she had resolved. And I love the distinction between resolve and resilience, right? And then she kind of just realized, screw it, I'm taking this on, right? Like she just kind of flipped the switch and owned it. Yeah. I'm imagining you watching as a young girl, watching how comfortable your dad is, not dealing with any of the issues that your mom's facing and thinking, well, that's a pretty cool way to go through life. Like I could just float into a room and be me. I'll take that. Right. So you, but a lot of people don't observe that. A lot of people don't see their dad at work or don't see their dad. They don't get to see their dad in that environment. So you're absorbing all of this confidence and ease of engagement, right? And then you see your mom kind of battling it and you see the opposite side of that, right? And then the backstory that your mom was you know, afraid of your dad, which by the way, I don't think was uncommon back then, particularly for a military vet, right? I mean, they're you're kind of wired a certain way. He's a big dude too. He's a giant guy. Like six oh, he's a big guy. Oh, yeah. They had asked him to be a professional wrestler when they were starting the professional wrestling league. Oh, you're kidding. On TV. No. He used to take me to the gym with him where all these meatheads worked out. Sure. Literally, like he was a big imposing man and had the temperament to match that. So what happened to you at five years old, you don't talk about it until you're in your 40s. Yeah. At what point are you 10, 12, 15 that you... You process that. When did you process that incident, let alone talk about it? Literally 43. At 43. No kidding. Imagine that. Yeah. I became a master anxious person, had nightmares all the time. Clearly I had PTSD. Sure. That's what it was called, but I knew, you know, right. and my parents, it's interesting. I think as a parent, that has to be a real kick in the ass to be, to be like, God, my kid's having nightmares all of a sudden. Yeah. About what? Right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. weird. I think for me too, I worried about everything. I worried about school. I worried about, was someone going to kill my family, which sounds incredibly crazy, but that's the background I had, right? So fast forward to, you know, not seeking any help, not telling anybody, no therapy, no meds, no nothing. At 43, my life completely disintegrated. I was the chief marketing officer at HGTV in Knoxville, mm -hmm. Tennessee. I was working in one of the most toxic environments. HGTV worked for me, undoubtedly, of all the jobs I've had, was a new level of toxicity. Just incredible. Really? At the same time, my marriage, I'd been married for 21 years, had completely fallen apart. My husband had had an affair with our real estate agent, of all people. Oh, geez. Yeah. And unfortunately, because I was a master emotional number, I had no idea how to deal with all this stuff. Then I started having problems with my parents because there were a lot of issues we had never worked out in our dysfunctional relationship. Sure. And it all, it was like perfect storm. It all hits at once. And amazingly, my ex-husband says, we should go to counseling. And I'm like, okay, well, we've been married for 21 years. I'll, I'll do it. I'll try it. Mm -hmm. I'll salvage this. We go to counseling. I learned very quickly from counseling that I did not need to be married to him anymore. To be fair, I'd outgrown him quite a long time ago. And I was just sticking with it, which is a family trait. Sure. That said, I needed therapy. And that was when I really started to remember, oh, yeah, yeah, this happened to me. I don't trust people. I don't really know how to feel emotions completely. I can feel them only so far. And then I have a really, really adept coping mechanism. Sure. Now. Okay. Episodes four, five, and six just transition. We might even have to turn some of these into a season. There's so many. Yeah. Have you thought about writing this into a book? 
I already have. So, so is the book kind of digging into some of this stuff in the past? That's going to be my second book. So okay, got I, it. during the pandemic, I started writing my memoir. I always knew I wanted to write about it. I did not want to write about it when my parents were alive. So my parents both have passed. And frankly, for me, I never told them what happened to me when I was five. And wow. I honestly didn't want to lay that on them for better or for yeah. worse. That's just me. Yeah. I don't think that's, yeah. me. it's not productive. If someone else wants to do that, that's cool. But I'm about 75% done with that memoir. The book that comes out next year is more of a leadership blueprint. Yeah. It's called The Blueprint. Yeah. Playing big with your life and career. Yep. So have you listened to or read Matthew McCotney's book, Greenlight? Yes, great book. A great book. We did the audio version and the opening scene will knock you on your can, right? And I'm, that scene resonates with me, like, because you've seen some things and, right, observed some things. So let's pivot a bit. You come to this realization in in your 40s. At that point, you're in therapy. You kind of realize you want to exit away from your first husband. How did you pivot this into resolving the situation at HGTV? What did you do? What was the transition there? So I found a therapist. I had to, therapy's interesting. Nobody tells you this, but sometimes you have to kiss a lot of frogs until you find the prince, right? Oh, yeah. What I learned is, I found a lot of women therapists and it might just have been that I was in Knoxville and a lot of them had a, a religious vent to them. And that's cool if you're into religion, but I'm not, right? I'm right. lapsed Catholic, religion's not my thing. Mm-hmm. So I had to find that person who was going to be relatively hard on me. And I ended up finding a guy. It turned out that because I have issues with men, because how strong of a personality my father was, having a male therapist was really, really good. And I really needed someone who would hold me, you know, call me to account. So interestingly enough, I did therapy for about a year and it really strangely made me a wreck in some ways because it surfaced all these emotions and made yeah. me them. But the self-actualization actually gave me a measure of comfort as well and, and confidence. So I went in one day, this was in early 2014, and I was harassed every single day at HGTV. And most of the harassment came from our head of HR. And interestingly- wow. SVP level. Yeah. Oh my. Amazing. Right. She had just decided early on that she was an early employee. She had the stuff. I didn't have the stuff. I think she was a gatekeeper. She saw herself for the whole company. I can look back now with a a level of rationality to it, but she would insist that we would have these one-on-ones, which I would do anything. I'd postpone them. I'd go on the road. I'd travel just so I didn't have to deal with her. Very much a business tactic. And finally, I couldn't avoid her anymore. It was this blustery January day. I'm sitting at my desk and she comes in and she starts off. She has a list of all the ways in which I suck, literally going through it. And I just kind of went into this. It was almost like a fugue state. And I look out the window and I say, I quit, but I don't say it very, very loud. And she goes, what? And I said, I said, I quit. I get the fuck out of my office. And from that day on, I was out. So I didn't have another job lined up at that point. I didn't have a contract that, you know, with a big severance sure. negotiating stuff, but I had no net basically no net. Yeah. And for me, while that was terrifying, it was also exhilarating because oddly as much of an assertive person as I had been, there were so many ways in which, because I couldn't process emotion and trust, I didn't stand up for myself. Sure. Probably the major thing that I got from therapy was that asserting myself and saying, this is scary, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, I'm no therapist. I'm no expert. But when I have my sister's a therapist, by the way, and I can't wait to have her listen to this episode. You remind me a little bit of her. She's got a, she's got a little spunk and fire and she's awesome. That's cool. But when I hear people describe, you know, here's the background. Here's when I kind of came to realization, I've got to get some help. Here's the help I received. Here's why it was important. Here's why this person resonated. 
the articulation is so good. Maybe that's because you're processing this book you're writing, right? You had to get your thoughts into exactly. not only chronological order, but identify what they were and be able to clearly communicate them. Mm-hmm. So you flip the finger at HTV, HTTV, walk out the door. What do you do next? So I had already been toying with being a CEO. I'll kind of rewind a little bit. So before I came to HGTV, my first job in television, I was the head of marketing for the Outdoor Channel, which mm-hmm. is a hunting and fishing network out yeah. in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I had I was the the head of marketing there. And what was cool is it was a smaller network. It was independent, publicly traded company, but it was a family-owned network. And I got to wear a lot of hats, and I loved that. At the time, towards the end of my tenure there, I reported to the COO, and out of the blue, his daughter gets sick. She gets leukemia and he's got to take a little bit of a step back. Now he was still very involved in the business. He didn't take a true sabbatical, but nonetheless, we all had to step up as just decent human beings and pick up, you know, some of the things that potentially he couldn't do while he was going to a treatment with his daughter in Seattle. So it exposed me to a lot of things in the business that as a marketer, I never would have been exposed to. Gave me some confidence to start to think, Maybe I could be a CEO someday, you know, which frankly, I'd never thought about before. And I started to explore it at HGTV. And I remember talking to my boss at HG and I said, I'd love to run a network. That was sort of the next logical step mm-hmm. for going to full CEO of a holding company mode. And I remember saying, I'd love to run one of our networks. We had a ton of other networks, not just HG. And he said to me, you'd have to be, he's like, how old are you? And at the time I'm like, I'm 43. He's like, you'd have to be well into your fifties for you to be ready for that. That just pissed me off because then I'm just like, because I'd always been, I started school early. I skipped some grades and I was always the youngest person. And I just got tired of that whole, you hear it a lot when you're younger and then you hear when you're older too. So you can't win. Yeah. I'm there now. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Me too. But I was just, I just remember being like, screw this. Right. So I started to look when I finally left HG, started to look for my first CEO role. It took me 10 months to find it. I kissed again, kissing a lot of frogs kissed so many frogs. I knew I didn't want to be in traditional media anymore. I thought traditional media had kind of fell asleep at the wheel. Streaming was becoming the be all to end all. This was 2014. And they were all sitting there just, you know, milking the cow, right? They were doing the same things and hoping it wasn't going to happen, which is ridiculous. So someone introduced me to a recruiter who was looking for a CEO for a private equity backed company. I didn't know nothing of private equity, but the, the role just really sang to me. It was an e-commerce company. They did graduation photography for all the colleges in the United States. Really sure. big operation, scale up in a season, scale down. We had 10,000 yeah. employees at peak, 150 when it wasn't season. Right. They were looking for someone to come in and really turn the company around and make a strategic exit. So I ended up landing that job. Landed that job 10 months, literally almost to the day after I left HGTV. Wow. And you you did do the exit. I did. And then you kind of stayed on board and helped them liquidate a couple of divisions that didn't go well. We did. And during the, your time there, you really cranked up EBITDA, which in a seasonal business is challenging, right? It was. It was. And it was a pretty mature company. It had come together through, I think, 17 or 18 consolidations at mm-hmm. least. Most of those happened before I came in. And what I was left with as sort of that next CEO was, okay, here it all is, put it all together and make it make sense, right? Sure. The next person who's going to find value and buy it. So we sold to Balfour, which is the company you might be familiar that does class rings and yep. other things, yearbooks. And that was really interesting. I was supposed to stay on for two years. And I was, you know, loved my team, you know, thought the Balfour move. I thought it was a great buyer, it was a great move. And I'm there for six months in the new role. And the whole gig was I was supposed to remain the CEO reporting to the board. And then after two years, we'd reassess, right? Maybe they'd need me. Maybe they wouldn't. I figured they'd right. not need me and send me off into the, the ether. They sure. had a CEO over Balfour. 
So my thing was, I'm not going to report to this other CEO. I'm a CEO of my own right. I'm going to report to the board. And they were like, that's cool because Balfour has a lot of stuff to accomplish. We don't want to distract them from the mission. Sure. So six months in, I get a call from our private equity backers. And they want to meet with me in Chicago and they essentially pull me, you know, into some, some drinks one evening and they're like, Hey, basically we'd like you to be co-CEOs with this other CEO. You can report to him, but you both have equal status. And I was like, no guys, I'm not going to do that. I work way too hard to amass this power small as it is, and I'm not doing it. So I was like, let's figure out an out here. Let's right. what I need to do to get you feeling comfortable, solid and transition so I can get out. It was challenging. I mean, the back yeah. and forth on it was challenging, but we did finally figure it out, divested some assets and off into the sunset. Good for you. And then that led you into, did you go right to Femi from there or what was the, what was the transition from that role? Yes. Yeah, so I went to another private equity backed company really like right out of the gate. And it was a, a company that was a paint and sip in the Northeast. So I had 30 okay. locations, so very much a retail business. Yep. But I'm literally there for a couple months and COVID hits. And the entire premise mm. of our business is people get together and they drink and they paint together yeah. and they're close. And that was, whoops. yeah, exactly. Whoops. It was interesting to run a retail business during the pandemic. It was super cool because I, we had no online, no virtual version of the business. So we were able to launch a virtual version of the business almost literally overnight with a skeleton crew of folks because we had laid off a bunch of folks. We furloughed people. And that was cool. I did that for a little bit over a year. Then I exited to work for a former Navy SEAL, a guy named Mark Devine. Uh, worked yeah. For him. Yep. I know who Mark Devine is. Yeah. yeah. I worked for him for about six months. It was not for me. And, and mm-hmm. I'll say part of it, I think, was is that I needed to create something for myself. And I don't think I fully recognized it yet. It's also for me tough to work for a founder. Founders, it's their baby, right? And even if they say, I want you to- Guilty. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm guilty too right now. But they come in, he said to me, I want you to be the first CEO. I want you to basically bring some structure and all that. And sometimes people just aren't ready. And I I think at the time he perhaps wasn't as ready. What was the impetus for creating Femi? Impetus for creating Femi was to be super fair. Even though I'd been a CEO for eight years total in total, I got tired of explaining myself as a woman at the table. And what that means is, you know, gnats in my eyes explanations on how business is done on the regular. I don't mind if you question me about deep things, critical thinking things, strategic things, but more like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? That to me is not, I don't find that very enjoyable, right? So for me, I was like, God, the problem here is, is that still in boardrooms, you know, when I started this career, like I said, I'd skipped a few grades. I was always younger than everyone else in my classes, in work, in my early days. And I remember I used to say to my mom, I'm the youngest and I'm the only girl, only woman, right? And she's like, that's going to change. Wait till it does, right? Last year, I'm 50 years old. I look around, I'm still the youngest. I was 50. I wouldn't call that young. And I'm still the only female. And so for me, I wanted to create a business that not only could make money, I'm all about making money, just like a lot of folks. But I wanted to have a social imperative, social mission, which is to inform women so they can get on their own path to the C-suite, be it just a functional C-level role, a CEO role, or a board role, or maybe all of them. And the problem is, if you come from a background like mine, I didn't know any C-suite people growing up. There were no people like that in my community. You really miss out, and women really miss this. You know, they don't have anybody to talk to. They don't have anyone to inform that, you know, the the climb. They don't have anybody like you. Yeah. Right now. Right? There's only 2% of me in the whole world. 
Right. You look at how many CEOs there are of all companies, public, private, globally, it's 2%. So I wanted to be able to basically be like the four dummies version, you know, of the, the CEO step. You know what's interesting, and, and again, this drew me to your profile, is you're not saying you should be a CEO because you're a woman, and statistically, we need more. You're saying, I'm going to help you figure out how to be a CEO. Yeah. I want you to be great. And let me, right. let me tell you, so I have 300 clients right now. Like I said, Holy I've been cow. at this now for 13, year, for 13 months, so not a long time. And when I say 300 coaching clients, some of them will just come yeah. in for a quick hit. One session yeah. here, some will yeah. do three packs, some will do something longer. But they are all, and I'm not lying across the board, they are all extraordinarily qualified. A lot of them have Ivy League educations. They're in many instances overqualified, quite frankly, from what I see in board yeah. And they're still struggling to get purchase. And I just don't get it. Like I get, I mean, I get it, but I don't get it by the same token. So there's got to be a way to, to take the path that you're offering them from a coaching perspective into the system, right? Into the, and I'm a recruiter, right? So I'm thinking to myself, how do I tap into that resource list? How do I how do I get access to that team? I'd love to. I'd love this area, Denise. How do I, how do I meet with these people, and then how do I champion their cause to their organizations? Because I can tell you, when I'm building a slate for the last year, I would tell you on average, sixty to seventy percent of my slates are women. Interesting. They're women, and they're incredibly qualified. In fact, I interviewed a woman the other day for a role overqualified, right? Yeah. And she's got incredible background training very well-known brand. And she's she knows she's kind of at this point where she could just cruise into another role there or go into something bigger. But I am I am shocked. I'm going to do a post about this early next year on the fact that not intentionally, I'm looking for specific qualifications. Sure. But what I find is that some of the soft skills and soft skills are one thing, but what I have found is that more women that I've interviewed have had multiple complementary experiences. Does that make sense? It does. Right? They have a background where they've got this skill, this skill, this skill. And I don't find that in a lot of males that I'm interviewing. No. So it's a really rich pot. And that's why I focus I focus on complex roles. My headlines, I'm looking for complex roles. I'm looking for somebody who says, I need someone that can do X, Y, and Z. Yep. Range. And it's hard to find them. Range. It's a range. It's a range. 300. That's fabulous. And one of the things, and that's just, that doesn't count the women who are coming to my workshops. I do in person sure. and virtual. So one of the things to your point, how do you get this ecosystem? Because here's the problem. It's more about getting these women into the ecosystems that already exist. Yeah. When I think about private equity, private equity is still extremely male. Venture mm-hmm. capital, same thing. Yep. So and I firmly believe having, you know, come up, I know people in those particular ecosystems. I don't think every man in private equity or every man in VC is a misogynistic pig. I don't. No. <laughs> I just think that sometimes we all get into the day to day. We get comfortable with the people that we know, right? That's human. And then we don't necessarily look outside the window of what is right. out there in the world. No question. Right. No question. Well, it's interesting. Your first turn in private equity, yeah. your background, unless somebody was really paying attention and got to know you, which I'm sure you got lucky. Fortunately, someone did. Someone took the time to get to know you Yeah. because they wouldn't even search you out. No. I want to look behind, underneath and find... That's right. For me, it's odd. I never thought I'd like this. I like the discovery piece of recruiting. I like literally finding the people who other people aren't finding. That's the smart piece though. Because you're not yeah. really recruiting, you're curating at the end of hundred percent, right? And then I get to then I get to do this. This is what I do all day. I talk to really cool people all day. Absolutely. And a lot of times it's like this isn't a fit, right? This is gonna be a fit over here. And I keep track of them. Yeah. But there's gotta be a way to monetize isn't the right word. 
but culminate your work into the right audiences. And now I'm intrigued because now I want to know more. How do we do that? This isn't our last conversation. We're going to figure out how to do this. I've already got, I've got something cooking. So good. what I want to launch is I want to launch a service called Fortuna. And oh. Fortuna is all about, and I'm also, I don't know about you, I'm tired of resumes. I spend so much time looking so at much. branding yeah. and all this stuff on a, a one, it's like Bob yeah. Cratchit back in the day. That's how he applied to Mr. Scrooge. Here's my resume, you know? Like, yes. we've got to do better. And to me, what I'm working on is with Fortuna, I want to have a platform where all my clients who I have vetted, I have certified because I've worked mm-hmm. with them, right? can come and can actually through video, video platform, give you the highlight reel of who the hell they are, what they bring. And then at the end of the day, though, I don't want the women to pay for it because there's way too much the women pay for everything. It's like, oh, if you're a woman, you need this thing, you need to pay for this. No, I want recruiters, the private equity industry, VC, you name it. I want them to pay for access to this amazing diverse pool of, I mean, gold star women. That's so we need to talk because I have a business plan in my computer. (laughs) Same thing. A hundred percent. It is a highly searchable, highly detailed video resume platform that's hosted. I love it. Oh, it's incredible. And it's, it's not a 30 minute highly produced, the best version of you. That's not real. It's micro segments. Like I'd like to have a snippet on your role at iconic, a snippet on your role at outdoor. And we'd coach you how to bring out the best of those bits. Yes. Right. And it's searchable, it's hostable. And employers who are looking, as I described before, that rare mix of skill sets, that's what we pull out. And they get to know you before they actually even speak to you because they see how you communicate, they see your confidence level, they see your presentation. Because let's admit it, if you want to be a CEO, you can't hide from video. You have to be able to get on a camera and do this. You do. So you can't hide from anything that way. And I think it's so important. And I've always, I did a post about a year ago saying, why are video resumes not a thing? It's because they haven't been done right. I agree. And what's interesting from my background working at Iconic Group, we got into, because we owned Marathon Photo, we started to put together through machine learning, algorithm, automated videos, highlight reels like that. So literally, you can automate everything that we just talked about. It's just a matter of having each of the distinct assets. And I think that's the future. I mean, for recruiting, I really do. The other piece that's missing right now in recruiting and for exec roles, I think this is really important. I think it's important for all roles origin story. One yeah. of the things, if you sat there, my first session with all my longer term coaching clients, I will literally spend an hour with them and just say, tell me the story of your life. And I want their career stuff. Don't get me wrong. And I want to know why they made the decisions they made. But I also want to know where'd you come from? And I, I'm always curious to see where they start. And so many of these women have dealt with such adversity in a very, with a plum, right? Yeah. I, I, have folks, I have folks who are refugees who, you know, just mm-hmm. incredible stories. And there's something special about that that they can bring to an org that someone who hasn't had that experience can't. Well, two things, right? First of all, your origin story is the best example of that, right? So if you sure. say, here's my origin story, I can't wait till we film it because it's going to be great. I'm already thinking about who's going to play you. We got to think about that. Right? There's okay. a couple options. But second of all, the fact that you said with a plum, right? They have these things they've overcome, but they didn't play the victim. Hell no. Right. And that's so important. They don't and it's such an example. About it. They're like, don't put this in any of my, my yeah. info. And I'm like, okay, if you're not comfortable. Yeah. Well, first of all, your origin defines a lot of your inherent soft skills and personality traits, right? Big time. 
It also, it's interesting because whether or not you want to publicize it, the ability to tell a story is something every CEO has to be able to do. Yes. Right. And if you can look back at your past, and I'll tell you a funny story. When I, ra- when I was raising money for my startup, I told a quick story about how I, I had no money. I literally flew to England to present to GSK to pitch my business. I had $200 in my bank account. I slept on the floor of the airport, drank a bottle of water for 48 hours, didn't eat, didn't do anything. And they told me we don't do business with startups. At the end of it, flew home and ended up getting them as a customer eight months later. But one of my investors said, tell that story every pitch. Tell that story because they want to know when the shit's getting tough, you're going to get on that plane, not eat for 48 hours and get the business. Because you won't be denied. That goes back to if, if resolve. one thread in my career and I say this to my clients all the time, if they're not going to let me in the front door, I'm going to go in the side. I'm going to go in the yeah. back. I'm going to bust a window. Maybe there'll be some tunneling like a Mexican <laughs> Tunneling. I love that. We're tunneling underneath the front door if we right. have to. A little El Chapo, whatever, whatever it takes. I love it. So let's let's pivot for the last few minutes into Themi. I know that there's a scholarship that you're offering, but the backstory on the 300 people that you're, you're bringing through this process and empowering them and training them and teaching them how to find their next role how does the scholarship come into play there? The scholarship is specifically for women who are in transition or okay. they're within the first two years of starting a business. So I do okay. two very specific programs aside from just, you know, short stint coaching, individual sessions. I do one called Power Up. That's for people who are a VP or higher. And mm-hmm. they really are thinking that they want to go higher, right? Maybe you want to be a COO, a CEO eventually. So we'll work to pass that out. We'll figure out what are the skills you need? What, who do you need to meet? The networking piece obviously is really important. And then sort of how long do we think it's going to take to get there, right? A real action. Right. Then for the, for the founders, I do, it's called Fuel for Founders. And that okay. is everything from who's the niche market you're going after? Who's the demo? What's your business plan? Kind of we work through very hardcore, very hands-on. How do you launch a business, right? Or if you've launched it, how do you make sure that you can scale it and you've got a sustainable Fantastic. Model? So I help with either. But if you're a woman who is either new within the first two years or you are, you know, in transition and you're not employed, I know for a fact that you might have the greatest skills in the world, but you can't afford my program. My program is $7,200, right? Sure. So I actually give scholarships to all my virtual workshops for those folks for free. So I've given, actually now it was 35,000. I've given over 40,000 in three workshops. So I have uh, two workshops. My two biggest workshops are financial statements. I have an intro to financial statements, just how to be a good consumer of financial statements. You have to make the financial statements. You know how to read them though. And you know a story by reading them. Yeah. That awesome. Is, that is by far my, my most popular. And so many women have been told, you're not good at math. Like if they haven't studied finance or business, you're not good at math. You'll never get it. You'll never understand it. Total crock, right? It's completely understandable. It's like elementary school math, for God's sake. It right? absolutely is. And it's you have to be able to speak to speak, right? You have to be Language. able to know. Yeah. It, by the way, it's my FP&A guys. That's where I went to find out where the dead bodies were, right? Oh, the FP&A guys- amazing could model, they knew everything going on in the business. And they would also be the first people to identify something going bad. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, this is not a good trend. And if this continues, we got a real problem. And then we could model out how to solve the problem, change it out. So, you know, fascinating people. What a great thing to be able to do. And I'm still blown away by the fact that there are 300 people you're having some dialogue with through the year, right? That are these valuable assets out there that companies could leverage 
don't know about yet. So we're gonna we're gonna solve that problem in 2023. That's you're our goal, be, dude. You're gonna be blown away by these women. I'm telling you. I can't wait. Blown away. I can't wait to meet them. Let's figure out how to do that after we get off this call. Let's wrap it up this way. Yeah. New Hampshire, yeah. gonna get cold. What's the plan for the holidays? Plan for the holidays is skiing. I'm learning how to ski. Not a lot of skiing, at least in my family in West Virginia. Other people ski. We didn't. So I'm learning how to ski. Literally, our ski mountain is. I'm on the commission that oversees it. It's ten minutes that. from our house. Yeah. So I'll be ski taking some ski lessons and honestly just chilling and getting ginned up for next year. I've got a lot of really exciting stuff for the business next year. So I like to pick a word every year on what's the theme for the year. So the theme for Themi for next year is accelerate. So I have to tell you, this was one of my favorite episodes of the year. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Literally, it was, you just incredibly got your shit together. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad that I fooled you. There's there's no other way to describe it. I don't do this very often. I'm going to do a little LinkedIn teaser post this afternoon about our conversation and tease out the episode when it comes out and send this off to my editors. It was really... We could do another one of these in next week, and I still wouldn't be able to tap into half the stuff we need to talk about. But until then, I'm going to work on the screenplay and contact a few people to see who can play the lead role. That's fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> You'll be a great agent. <laughs> Denise, it's so nice meeting you. I'll follow up. We'll figure out some of the things we can do to maybe help collaborate. But have a wonderful holiday season. And thank you for sharing not only your origin story, but uh, how you're using your background to help others. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday. All right. You too. Take care. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.